The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 19th, 2018. On this week's show, the Athletics' Ethan Sherwood-Strauss will be here to assess whether the conflict between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant will be the thing that breaks up the Golden State Warriors dynasty. Oliver Rader of 538 will also join us to talk about the showdown between Magnus Carlsen and Fabiano Caruana at the World Chess Championship. And finally, the Atlantic's Derek Thompson will be here to discuss how youth sports in America has become the province of the wealthy, with kids from lower-income families getting left behind. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Uh, Alex Smith, 33 years after Joe Theismann, with Joe Theismann in the stands, breaks his tibia and fibula in the Washington game against the Houston Texans. That was gross. 33 years to the uh, day, to the weekend. Yeah. It was gross and sad. Football's fucked up. It's dangerous. <laughs> Don't play football, kids. Yeah, is there anything uh, anything else to say? Uh, that Joe Theismann hit was... Um, the subject of an afterball I did a few years ago. Was the subject of an afterball you did. It was the subject of the beginning of the movie, uh, The Blind Side. Mm -hmm. Maybe if uh, the Washington offensive line had watched that movie, they would have understood the importance of uh, your quarterback not getting his leg broken and mangled horrifically. Mm -hmm. It seems like one of these like horrific leg mangling breakages happens. It happens like once a year. In, in football sports. or other sports, right. In other, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It so does. We were due for one. Sorry, Alex Smith, that it had to be you, it's, but it had to be someone. It did. Just for the universe to be in balance, your leg had to be horrifically out of balance. Yeah, and I think I did that Joe Theismann after ball um, about the novel, the throwback special by, by Chris Batchelder. I wonder if there's like a group text where like Kevin Ware is on there. Uh, you've got your mm -hmm. Paul George maybe will chime in. Theismann, Theismann's all thumbs on the group text. He doesn't quite know how to use emojis well. But that would be a good – maybe we should just get all of them together for like a summit, a horrific leg breakage summit. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The Golden State Warriors lost to the San Antonio Spurs 104-92 on Sunday night, their fourth loss in five games. Steve Kerr said it was his most challenging week as the team's head coach, which probably had less to do with uh, his team now being a mere 12-6 and on the year. Uh, as well as Stephen Curry being out with a groin strain uh, than it does uh, to do with the conflict between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant. On Monday against the Clippers, Durant got mad at Green for failing to pass him the ball in the final seconds of regulation. The Athletics' Marcus Thompson reported that Green responded by accusing Durant of making the whole season about him, even though he was going to leave after the season. Also, Green reportedly called Durant a bitch multiple times. 
Joining us now to discuss is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, also of, of The Athletic. I would not call you a bitch even once, Ethan. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say also someone who's been called a bitch <laughs> multiple times by Draymond Green, which would be accurate. That would actually be accurate. <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, I, I can't wait to get into your personal relationship with, uh, with Draymond later in the segment. But I wanted to start by commending Draymond Green. He, uh, you know, he often doesn't get enough credit for his play on the court, for him being the linchpin of the Warriors. But in this case, I want to commend him for his impressing leveling up of an argument by (laughs) taking it from pass me the ball to while the game was still going on, mind you, uh, responding, you're going to leave as a free agent and also you're a bitch. Um, This is the domestic equivalent (laughs) Ethan, of going from, why don't you help clean the dishes to, I've never loved you and I want a divorce. I I love that analog and it's something that that Amin El-Hassan on ESPN has talked about. Uh, Shaq had that quality as well, where Shaq teases you, he teases you, he teases you. And if you poke him back, uh, the response is nuclear. It's 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 not it's not you know we're both we're both going back and forth, which I think is a frustration. Um, and I think Marcus has also written about uh, with with some of the players and some of the teammates, where it's this feeling of, and I'm sure Chris Paul's teammates might have a similar feeling of how can you be so constantly critical um, and cannot take any criticism the other way. Yeah, I mean, this is important in any relationship, right, Stephanie? You need to be able to argue in a mm-hmm. generative mm-hmm. way. I'm sure you can now tr- grace us with an example from your own life or not uh, and just relate this back to the to the Warriors. But do you think that it's like – I mean, nat- the, the thing that I go to naturally is like a domestic – situation. Um, I guess you could also think of it as like a workplace relationship situation. I don't know. What you, what do you think? About I think here? it's any relationship situation where someone shows up out of the blue and decides to, you know, move out your furniture and put all of their furniture in the living room or rearrange the kitchen entirely. I mean, despite the two championships, it is still after two plus years now, I think in the front of my mind as a fan that he is the person that doesn't belong. He is the third wheel in this relationship. It still feels like he is the outsider. And what we know about Durant's personality and the, is his relationship with the players feels like it reinforces that. And that's going to come out. I'm not sure that it should come out like during a timeout. But it's there, and it's the subtext for how the Warriors function. Well, the funny thing, Ethan, is just like how um, this conversation or this argument just like so closely parallels the like sports radio version mm-hmm. of the mm. Warriors argument of like Draymond Green is like, you're not a true warrior. It's like hilarious <laughs> to me. Well, and also Durant is somebody where uh, I, I think he could have a sports talk show. He's he's pretty approachable for somebody who gets uh, portrayed perhaps as a little bit prickly or standoffish or somebody who hates the media. You can always walk up to him. And one of the most fun things to do with Kevin Durant is to just ask him about the other teams and players in the league. And he starts firing off his hot takes. I, I honestly think he might... Uh, it's a little ironic that he's going at Colin Cowherd because I could see Durant as one of those guys on uh, on a Cowherd type show after his career. And I, I would say this argument 
or this, uh, what do we, what do we call what's happening with the Warriors? An imbroglio. I know that's one that, that you guys like to use. Uh-huh, sure. it, it gets, it gets at some bigger sports questions. Um, a, a, a lot of big sports questions. For instance, if these players hate each other, let's just suppose they do. Does it actually undermine the operation? Does it actually do anything uh, to hinder the Warriors winning? And and here's another one. Uh, say you think the Warriors ruin the league. Maybe this is illustrative of this. Maybe this is an example of this. Maybe this should undermine them, but they're just so good that it won't matter, and they're going to win anyway. And that's part and parcel of what makes them so frustrating to so many uh, to so many people. Well, in, in, um, in writing about yeah. this on the Athletic, Ethan, I think you made a you made a terrific point about how we view the construction or, or, or the existence of sports teams in the social media age. You know, mm. previously you might have just said, you know, why do Draymond Green and Kevin Durant need to get along. They just need to play basketball together. Obviously, if Draymond is calling him a bitch on the court, it's going to hinder perhaps their ability to play they basketball did, they together. They did lose that game in overtime. They did lose that game in overtime. Um, so the, the point that you were making about the sort of um, the media, Twitter, fans, the way we look at winning now is more nuanced. You said it's a social media-driven conversation, picks apart historic accomplishments while basking in a perpetual present, which is a nice line. Um, do you think that is like fueling this? I mean, do you think that you know, we know something about what's going on in the locker room and in the front office? It's not all just fans and observers and media members picking this apart to see if there's some sort of tension in the relationship that's going to doom the dynasty. Yeah, we've kind of shifted from a conversation that's quite worshipful of winning. Uh, In a way, we've devalued winning in favor of a more granular understanding of what contributes to wins. It used to be, uh, if if you won, you were great. Hey, here's the the, the Cy Young Award. You won a bunch of games, and we don't care that your ERA is maybe a little higher than the other guys. What matters is you've won. And now we understand that that you know, that's it's not your fault necessarily if you're losing games as a pitcher uh, when your offense isn't performing. And it's similar with the NBA. And so, uh, you know, you might have assumed that Durant coming to the Warriors wins some championships. Maybe some people are mad initially, uh, but might makes right. And we need to celebrate the winner and we need to give him his credit. But it didn't quite happen. I, I don't feel as though the estimation of Kevin Durant as a basketball player uh, has improved in the public consciousness uh, in the subsequent years since he joined the Warriors, even if he had two dominant NBA finals, I have to say it's a little unfair to him. He had two dominant NBA mm-hmm. finals, and those were situations where if he did falter, uh, he would have been ripped to shreds for it. So it seems as though it's all potential for losing and no potential for winning, even if he is actually winning. And he is somebody who does care about getting some validation and some credit. And it just doesn't seem to exist here, even if the success has. Well, what I think is going on here is that um, maybe not at The Athletic, where you guys are pursuing a subscription model and just like really in-depth kind of journalism that people want to pay to read. But for the rest of us, Ethan. We're all about clicks. We all really want to get the clicks. Mm. And what people really want to read is about impending free agencies and transactions. Like that is the stuff if you look across all of like media and social media, that is stuff is way more popular than anything that you would write about games, including the finals. And so what ha- what's happening here um, with this like Green and Draymond rift, it's all about free agency in 2019 and in 2020, and the Warriors are going to win this year. This is not going to 
effect uh, their on-court product as long as everybody's healthy. But the way that the Warriors dynasty is going to end is either through the players just like getting super old and staying together. It seems like not particularly unlikely, and that's not a very fun story. The more likely thing is that, you know, mm. Clay will go, or Clay will go, Durant will go, Draymond will go. And so people actually care that this is a story about, um, you know, winning and about championships, but it's yeah. just like way it, it, early. In a way, it's, it, this conversation appears perhaps to be more about the future than about the present. You know, earlier when I was saying, hey, uh, do players hating each other, does that undermine their ability to win a championship? I can't tell you that with confidence. I can't tell you with confidence that Shaq and Kobe hating each other undermine the Lakers, uh, uh, you know, when in their pursuit of the 2004 championship because, hey, the Pistons were a great team. Maybe the Pistons would have won otherwise. But what I can tell you with a large degree of confidence is that Shaq and Kobe being at odds contributed to Shaq leaving the team for the Miami Heat and breaking up the Laker dynasty. So that really is the conversation I think we're having about the Warriors right now. It's not about, hey, will this be an obstacle to their winning in the present? It's where is Kevin Durant going and is he leaving because of this? Right, and you'd, you'd sort of name this winners on we in, in your piece because they've won already, right? They've won twice with, with KD and they've won without KD. So what are we naturally looking for? We're looking for some sort of narrative to get us through the season. And if there really is no love lost between Durant and Draymond or Durant and other players on this team. Well, that is kind of newsworthy. Uh, Marcus Thompson, your colleague, wrote the other day that players on the Warriors don't want to go through another season of begging Kevin Durant to stay. Oh, boo-hoo. Well, yeah, <laughs> but boo-hoo, but that does affect the dynamic and it does affect but relationships. Yeah, they don't want that that sort of Duranticles just hanging over them the whole time. And yeah, it's 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 boo-hoo, but I can understand it. This idea that you constantly need to walk on eggshells for fear—I I think it's just not a normal state. The one the one and one in the NBA—it's it's a strange state. Although it's it's enjoyable for the player who holds the power because players do like having power. It, it is a little bit precarious for a team. There's something else here that I found a little interesting, which is just watching uh, the media player dynamic in the aftermath of the Atlanta Hawks game after this whole thing had happened and people had digested it, where uh, there, there were questions about friendship. And uh, I think Kerr was asked about the friendship between Durant and Draymond and, and gave an answer that, that you could just read between the lines and go, hmm, maybe there is no friendship. And Durant was asked about his friendship with Draymond, and he said, that doesn't even matter right now. And I, I this sounds silly, but whenever when I started doing this, one of the common questions I get or one of the easy ways I can scandalize uh, friends who want to know what, what it's like and what the players are like is just telling them that NBA players aren't friends. People really want these guys to be friends. They, they like the juiciness of them feuding, but they also want to buy into the idea that these guys who are all high-fiving and in uniforms are friends and that it's important that they're friends. Why? And that's just... I don't know. It's a very strange... Uh, it's a very strange thing. I, mean, I guess Josh and I really aren't friends, to be honest. Oh, that's we sad. We do a good See, podcast, I just, right? I, I just got bummed out. We hold it together out. every week. No, I'm kidding. We love each other. I, well, yeah, I, I just yes, we'll, we love each other. We'll we'll see. We're in an industry, I think, a quasi industry. We want to talk about podcasting, uh, where 
I think people actually do want you guys to be friends because in a way, and this makes it sound lonely and sad, they're renting friendship a little bit. They're not just coming to you for the information <laughs> and for the takes. They want to hear a few people who have a certain rapport because maybe they're doing the dishes or they're driving and they want to get some vicarious human connection. And maybe it's the same in sport and they want to believe these guys are friends so they can feel a little less lonely in the world. Just my crazy crackpot theory. Damar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, they're really friends, right? Those guys seem like friends. And actually, that was one of the ways I learned that most NBA players aren't friends is that when you do see a friendship it puts the other relationships into stark relief. NBA players tend not to be friends, and I'm stealing a little bit from the book I'm writing, because they like having a hierarchy and being at the top of it, and they like the entourage life. Uh, they, like, they, they like it to be obvious. They go into the club, you know, who gets the hottest girl? I get the hottest girl. Okay, where are we going to eat? Oh, it's where I, I'm going to eat. It's all frictionless. It's it's easy. If you're hanging out with your friends who are non-basketball players, you know that you are the center of attention and whatever you say goes. I think that the front offices and ownership are not deluded about whether players are friends or whether they need to be friends. So I think they tend to view these uh, relationships and these blow-ups as business decisions that need to be managed. And in this case, the uh, team decided to suspend Draymond Green for one game, and one of the owners, Joe Lakeup, came out and said that this isn't about choosing sides, that this was just a business Mm -hmm. decision, that we had to let Draymond know that he had crossed the line here. But immediately, the speculation, to go back to what Josh was talking about, the speculation about the why is that, hey, maybe they're sending a message that Draymond is the piece that we're willing to let go. Well, I mean, I feel like it's kind of remarkable that we've spent this whole conversation focused on, like, Kevin Durant, Durant and right. he doesn't fit in when Draymond Green is like clearly the aggressor and the one who acted uh, inappropriately here. And if you're thinking like, who should we suspend? Who do we want to send a message to? Maybe the guy who like acted out and called the other guy a bitch. Like that, <laughs> that doesn't seem like totally crazy to me. Not that <laughs> on the court in public. Not that I think Joe. Not that I think Joe Lacob is uh, necessarily the the guy who I look to for uh, all all wisdom. But this doesn't seem like a case where we really need to think like super big picture about what the uh, strategic implications were. Well, except Ethan, the strategic implication is that yeah. you didn't have to suspend him for a game. They could That's have fined true. him $10,000 nope. and you, said you, you Draymond was bad and behave better <laughs> next time. You didn't need to make it public. You didn't need to shame him that way. Right. I don't think uh, – I think that was the surprising decision. That that That's what was a little shocking. And um, you do have to think about it strategically long term. Now – the organization, not just publicly, but even privately, is trying to communicate to people that, look, this had nothing to do with Kevin Durant. This was about Draymond crossing the line. And if you knew how bad it was, then you would get it, which then just you know amplifies the mystery. Mm-hmm. Of, okay, so was it even worse than we think and, and, and everything else? But look, they could be telling the truth about that. You know, sometimes uh, the PR push isn't a lie. Uh, but I do wonder if there's a bit of doth protest too much with this idea that it has nothing to do with with placating Kevin Durant. Um, I, I, I do wonder about that. And they're in a circumstance where uh, there is an expectation around the league that, that Kevin Durant is going to leave. Now, these things can change. Uh, the, these things can change. They all exist in the mind of a guy. And if the option that people are touting is the New York Knicks, I mean, am I supposed to just buy into the New York Knicks pulling off something successfully? That's that's a little bit hard to do. But 
if you can make that choice and if you can augment your odds to get Kevin Durant to come back, then you start looking at the Draymond situation. He's a great player. I think an underrated player because we act as if defense isn't as important as offense uh, for whatever reason. Uh, maybe the best defensive player in the league. But if you have an expectation that he's not going to age so well at 6'5 in socks with maybe not the best body, and he's going to be 30 years old when he signs that next deal, and he's looking for he's looking for upwards of $200 million um, with the Supermax if he can get certain requirements for it, maybe you wonder if greasing the skids for a, a Draymondless future isn't something that the front office considers. Back to Draymond calling you a bitch for a second. Oh, yeah. Um, Sure. So you wrote about uh, the Warriors' Draymond Green problem back in your ESPN days. So um, the 2016 finals when he got suspended, that's uh, kind of ancient history now. Nobody ever talks about the Warriors blowing a 3-1 lead. It's been completely erased from all of our memories. They have won these two titles. So kind of where is Draymond now um, with the organization, um, having this history and not history, like current, the current events of him always having the potential to blow up the team, uh, blow up chemistry, having uh, an example of him <laughs> costing them a championship, but also being this key cog in their two title runs, kind of where where is the organization with him, um, do you feel? That's a big question. I think the top level of the organization is very pro-Draymond. I think Joe Lacob sees himself as a Draymond-esque figure. If you remember, in the 2016 finals, he was wearing Draymond's jersey in Game 5 after he got suspended. Um, Does he also call you a bitch? Joe has not, uh, at least not to my face, but... (laughs) You know, Joe, I, I don't think Joe necessarily, even if he looks at Draymond as somebody he, he has similarity to, I don't think that he uh, acts similarly when he sees red and flies off the <laughs> flies off the handle. Just checking. But just checking. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is not that has not happened. But um, I think at the very top line, very pro Draymond, I think as you get lower down the line, maybe could kind of go either way. And at least with everybody, even the people who might have the biggest issues with him, they have to admit one thing, which is that when he's on the court, uh, he's all about winning, and he's a fantastic person to play with. It's just all the other stuff that people tend to get tired of. Ethan Sherwood-Strauss writes uh, for The Athletic. He has a book coming up in which he basically spends the entire manuscript talking about different NBA players that aren't friends with each other. That's my understanding of the book based on this preview that we got here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's just a listing of past dynasties where guys weren't friends. Uh, <laughs> you have a pyramid. You know, there's a pyramid involved of friendship, there's, right? There, there's a pyramid of uh, anti-friendship, anti-friendship and not even, right. and not, not even guys who hate each other, just guys where, eh, you know, either way, you know, it's like Havlicek and Bill Russell, they didn't hate each other. They, I, I actually have no idea. They might've loved each other, but anyway, yeah. Last- thanks for having me on guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. 
Terms apply. Before we get to chess, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk about the report that the Cleveland Browns are interested in interviewing Condoleezza Rice for their recently vacated head coaching position. We will attempt to answer the question, what is up with that? Uh, To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Game eight of the World Chess Championship in London on Monday between title holder Magnus Carlsen of Norway and challenger Fabiano Caruana of the United States ended the same way as the first seven games did in a draw. On Twitter, Susan Polgar, grandmaster and chess coach at Webster University, declared it another exciting day gone wrong. Joining us now to assess just how exciting the day was and also how wrong is Oliver Rader, whose daily dispatches for 538 about the match are bringing me and countless others great joy. Welcome back to the show, Ollie. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Eighth draw in a row. Retrograde American sports writers are going to start comparing chess to soccer. Ollie, the 26-year-old Caruana was playing with the white pieces on Monday, which confers a slight advantage. He had a chance mid-game to press for the first win, but then came move 24, pawn to h3, and the chess commentariat collectively groaned. Given how hard it is to explain what happens in a game of chess, Ollie, how do you explain what happened in this game of chess? Um, I, chess is best understood, I think, through metaphor. Uh, and I think the, uh, the air went out of the balloon with, with the infamous pawn to h3. And Caruana has been playing amazingly well, but you have to be near nearly perfect to win a game against Magnus Carlsen at the World Chess Championship. And Caruana was for much of game eight. He built up a pretty sizable advantage. There are supercomputers that keep their eyes on the games and and one supercomputer had Caruana with the equivalent of a two pawn advantage, which at this level is just enormous. But H3 sort of slowed down his attack and he had to be a little faster and a little more aggressive than he was and yes the game ground to a halt and was a draw was agreed to on the 38th move so um these eight games have played out differently even if they've ended in the same drawish fashion um not drawish draw (laughs) draw ish then a draw period yes yes so how many games out of the eight has uh, one of the players carved out an advantage and has there been a pattern in terms of how those advantages have been whittled away on 538 we've been sort of keeping track of the computer analysis uh, over every move of every game, and what it spits out are these little uh, sort of EKG heart diagrams, and and some of them are bouncing around like crazy, and then settle down to a draw, and some are very boring and not exciting. So I think there were maybe four of the eight games, four of the eight draws, there were meaningful winning chances at some point for one player or the other, and recently, uh, game six, and then uh, Monday in game eight. That person has been Caruana, the, the American challenger. And once in the very first game, Carlson, the defending champion, had a completely won game uh, that he um, 
that he could not see through to the end. So I'd say half have been um, uh, sharp and half have been uh, pretty dull. And so as these advantages have kind of, um, you know, gone down and, and we've seen the game end in a kind of predictable pattern, is it fair to say that like a grandmaster on these guys' levels, like that they've made a mistake and they should have won? Or are these advantages ones that only a computer can discern and that it's actually not reasonable for us sitting here looking at our chess engines to say they blew it or, oh, they made like a massive blunder? Yeah, that's right. I mean, chess is so complicated that mistakes you know, come in many different flavors, right? From your outright blunder to a mistake to what I think uh, in this case is more often uh, inaccuracies. So I think the players would be the first to admit that they've made inaccuracies. We haven't seen anything um, that I think it would be fair to call a blunder. Uh, but speaking of the computer engines um, in game six uh, a few days ago, uh, the supercomputer looking at the game found uh, guaranteed checkmate for Caruana 30 moves down the road. And in chess, that's just incredibly, incredibly uh, hard to find. You know, every additional move makes it um, much, much more difficult to, to look that far down this, you know, huge branching tree of options. So, yes, technically Caruana had a surely one game in game six. Uh, but no one's blaming um, the human Fabiano for for missing that mate. Players at this level in chess and other mind sports are always incredibly evenly matched. And it's not unusual to see a lot of draws. Of course, I was looking at a piece on chessbase.com where a, a, a high-level player did an analysis of Grandmaster games and found that it's, what, more than 50%. It's like 53% of games between two Grandmasters traditionally end in a draw. So this is not surprising, but I'm wondering... I also wrote about the 1984 championship where there were 17 straight draws right. between Kasparov and... Yeah, eight Arpa. is nothing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hey, we're just getting going. <laughs> Unfortunately, this match will end at 12 in regular format before moving on to other formats in chess. But my question for you, Ali, is are players today like Harwana and Carlson closer inability than grandmasters in the past because all of them have been reared by studying computers and have had the ability to dive so much more deeply into games more easily than players decades and even centuries ago were able to do. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think the short answer is yes. And I think there's there's two things that make drawing in chess more likely. The better players get and the more evenly matched they are. And Carlson and Caruana are as good and about as evenly matched as you can be. I think only like three ELO points uh, out of the 2,800 and change that they have uh, separate the two. And yeah, I think computers have tended to make chess more drawish at these levels. Um, computers make it much, much easier to elaborate on the opening theory, the theory that governs uh, moves in the earliest part of the game, and and therefore makes it much easier to avoid mistakes at the beginning of the game. And the preparation that these two players have shown is incredible. I mean, occasionally, they'll be in their fully prepared 
lines of moves until you know the 20th move which is for someone like me literally unbelievable but they move so quickly and so accurately that it's obvious that they've prepared this line at home with uh, with the help of their coach and their computer in your intro Stefan you seem to be pushing back against this idea that just because there are a bunch of draws here that that means this match hasn't been exciting um, I think it's probably worth us going through at least the counter argument here because so much of the popular mythos around the world chess championship and as Stefan has talked about is around like Bobby Fischer and swashbuckling players and like crazy risky moves um, that you can't possibly anticipate. And I think there is this notion and one that doesn't feel crazy to me that in the age of the chess engine, that that kind of play, that kind of like charismatic artistic play no longer exists. And especially in a game like, you know, in basketball, when teams are evenly matched, the games still don't end in a tie. Like, it's just like the nature of the game of chess is that when players are evenly matched and ends in a draw, it's like not the case in other games or sports. So when those two things are in combination in like a, a game where the engines determine so much about players play and in a game when the players are evenly matched and ends in a draw, that seems like not actually a great recipe for this game in terms of popularity, in terms of charisma, in terms of star making and excitement. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a, a trade-off here. I, I think there are a lot of things that organizers could do to make the match more conventionally exciting, right? Simple ideas like you could give them less time. Some of these games can stretch six, seven hours. Uh, you could make, you could go to soccer, you could make a win worth more points. So in chess, a win is one point, a draw is a half point. In soccer, typically a win is three, a draw is one. So you could incentivize winning over drawing with the scoring system. Um, you could make draws with black worth more than draws with white, et cetera. But I think you're balancing this sort of conventional notion of excitement with sort of the quality of the chess that's being played. I mean, if you give the players less time, the quality of chess is going to be uh, guaranteed to be lower. The games might be more exciting um, to a lay fan or even to uh, an elite fan. But um, I think there's a trade-off between quality and, and some notion of excitement. One of the hopes for this championship was that Caruana, being the first American since Bobby Fischer in 1972 to even compete for the title, would raise its profile um, somehow, somewhat, in the United States. I'm not even sure what that means, though, Ollie. Like, what, what, what would chess organizers be hoping for? Um, for you know, a match like this to be on TV the way Fischer Spassky was in 1972? for more kids to play chess? I mean, chess is already pretty ingrained in, in elementary schools, particularly around the country. What, what hopes are there for chess as a, as a sport, as a business? I think a lot of people would say sponsorship. You know, they would want interest to rise to the point where, you know, uh, blue chip sponsors would be attracted to the sport. But mm -hmm. Stefan, I think, I think you're exactly right. I mean, to me, Chess seems pretty healthy in the United States. Um, for one thing, you know, it's not on TV, but it's on, say, uh, Twitch, the right. video game streaming service, and there's live YouTube channels. And chess sort of strangely has become this very, very popular esport. 
Um, and during the exciting game six a couple of days ago, conventionally exciting and chess exciting, uh, I think the, the chess match was the number one most streamed game on Twitch, uh, which is competing against, you know, what do the kids play? Fortnite and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think chess, chess seems pretty healthy uh, in terms of the sort of rank and file. Um, but I think, you know, there's probably only a handful, if that, of players who can just play chess uh, as as their living to make their living, so I think you know sponsorship would be would be uh, number one on most people's right. lists. How 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 reasonable that is, or or how that happens, I don't really know. And celebrity too. I mean, we really haven't had a chess celebrity um, like Fisher since Fisher. Gary Kasparov obviously is one, but that partly came from his political activity after his chess career ended. And Carlson ar- arguably is a is a world-class cele- celebrity anyway, if not one in the United States. I mean, he's got sponsorships. He's made tons of money. He can be a full-time chess a guy. persona guy. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that does seem within the realm of possibility but probably won't happen after this event is for Caruana to be a celebrity or to if not like chess being on TV or, um, you know, having like some massive surge in popularity in the U.S. Like one thing that we are capable of doing here is like worshiping people who do things that we don't understand and yeah. don't even necessarily like just because they're winners. Um, but I don't think this event and who's, you know, who knows what will happen in the next handful of matches and the tiebreakers, which we should talk about in a second. But like, you know. If Caruana like won in some like incredible and charismatic way, you would do the talk show circuit, and people might know his name. Yeah, and I think I mean the comparisons to Fisher and the Fisher fever that resulted from his win in 1972. I mean those are inevitable, right? I've I've written about them in a number of my stories, but I think any any hope tied to this match this year repeating that is are is just completely unrealistic i mean that match was perfectly timed uh with you know the height of the cold war and fisher the swashbuckling yankee taking on the soviet hegemony that was chess and, and you know and fisher was a great character i mean helped in no small part because he was mentally ill um and i don't think that really any of those uh pieces uh fit together this year i think if caruana wins chess will not become less popular in the u.s uh but i don't know if it's going to make sort of this the huge impact that it did you know 40 years ago all right let's talk about how this match is going to end as it inevitably will because there is a thing at the end called armageddon and somebody has to win when it gets to armageddon so after 12 games if it's still tied then um it transitions into, as you alluded to earlier, um, Ali, games in which the players have less time to make decisions. So there's rapid chess and then possibly blitz chess and then Armageddon at the end. So two questions for you. First, um, I'd like you to just explain what those variations are. And second, given that Magnus Carlsen is the number one ranked player in the world in terms of rapid and blitz, I'm also interested in, is this a strategy for him where he's just trying to get to the rapid and blitz games because he has such a big advantage over Caruana there. If so, it seems like a little risky, but um, go ahead and explain what these kind of variants are. 
Yeah, so at some point, someone is going to win a game of chess in this match. Uh, it used to be that if the match was tied at the end, the defending champion just retained his crown. Uh, but there will be a decisive result at some point. So, if, yes, if the 12 sort of regulation games wind up tied, six points to six points, they will first play four um, a mini match of four rapid games. And in those games, each player gets 25 minutes for all his moves and they get 10 bonus seconds after each move. So this is quite a bit quicker um, than the regulation games where the players start with 100 minutes and they get bonus time in this complicated way as the game goes forward. So four rapid games. If those are still tied, uh, they'll begin playing mini matches of two blitz games and each player in those gets five minutes uh, with three seconds after every move. Uh, they'll play up to 10 of those <laughs> if necessary and if those remain tied there is one more game they will play which is a style of chess called armageddon and in that version uh, white gets five minutes black gets four minutes but a draw counts as a win for black so there are no draws and we actually progressed to the tiebreakers uh, in the 2016 world championship uh, but i regret to report that they did not make it to Armageddon, nor did they even make it to Blitz. So we should totally be rooting for Armageddon here. Oh, I don't see why you wouldn't. I don't see why you wouldn't. I, I have a piece from last uh, from 2016 called Rooting for Armageddon. Um, so I am guilty of rooting for Armageddon. And on the Magnus question, is he trying to make it to the tiebreaker games? Oh, yeah. Um, I think they asked him about something, a question like that at the press conference after today's game. And I, he didn't admit that that was at least explicitly his strategy, but he did say that he was totally happy today to draw with the black pieces, which are usually at a slight disadvantage. And yeah, as you mentioned before, Carlson is number one in rapid and blitz. And I think Carwana is if I'm remembering right, number eight and number 16, respectively. So Carlson would be just an, a complete uh, odds-on favorite if the match went to tiebreakers. And I think this speaks to sort of the strategy for Caruana, too, which is if he has any sort of secret attacking chess weapons, um, he's sort of running out of time to, to deploy them. Tuesday is a rest day for the players. They will play game nine on Wednesday with 10, 11, and 12 to follow. If it gets to Rapid Blitz and Armageddon. That's all in one day on Wednesday, November 28th. Everybody, Mark it on your calendar. Everybody take off work. <laughs> one Nor amazing in, day. In, in Norway, they will for sure. Oliver Rader is covering the World Chess Championship for 538. Ollie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Stefan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a piece published earlier this month headlined American Meritocracy is Killing Youth Sports, The Atlantic's Derek Thompson reported that the share of children ages 6 to 12 who play a team sport on a regular basis declined from 41.5% in 2011 
to 37% in 2017. Digging into those numbers, Thompson found that 69% of kids from households that have a greater than $100,000 annual income played youth sports, while that number was just 34% for children whose families earned less than $25,000. Thompson writes that declining athletic participation is a prime example of how the choices even benevolent rich households make can hurt poorer families, especially their children. Joining us now to discuss is Derek Thompson. He writes for The Atlantic. He's the host of the podcast Crazy Genius and the author of the book Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Welcome to the show, Derek. Hey, it's so great to be here. Thank you. So um, can you explain that um, quote that I just read about um, declining athletic participation being an example of how the choices that rich households make and how they can hurt poorer families? How does that manifest itself in youth sports? Yeah, so I think you set it up really well. What appears to be a like sort of monotonic story of declining youth participation turns out to be more like a two-track story where you have uh, slightly rising participation among the rich and uh, quickly declining participation among the poor. And I think that those sort of two directions are, are related because one thing that happens is Tom Ferry, uh, who's the executive director of Aspen Sports and Society Program, described to me is that you have the rise of the club team or the travel sports team. So what will happen is a parent will say, I want little Johnny or little Sally to be really, really great at soccer, uh, to get on her varsity team, maybe even get a college scholarship. I'm going to pay several thousand dollars to get her on a travel team. And that is going to put her with some of the best coaches, some of the other best players. She's going to really maybe have a good time on this travel team, build a lot of uh, skills. But what happens at the local level is that as all these parents are essentially taking their children, their resources, and their own time and potential coaching time as well away from the local level, it's leaving these local towns recreation leagues sort of desiccated. But the numbers point to rising participation among wealthier families and in towns and cities where you have this sort of bifurcated youth sports system where the the elite players or even just better than average players get siphoned off into quote unquote travel teams because look, these travel leagues can expand also and they do expand. So mm -hmm. what they want is more participation so you can add teams or add divisions and your, you know, Johnny or Susie can be participating Sally. in, I'm sorry, Sally can be Thank participating. You, Josh. Thank you for correcting me, Josh. Um, Johnny or Sally can be considered to be an elite player. Um, but in these wealthier communities, you know, if, if participation is still rising, it doesn't seem to be affecting. The problem to me seems to be the lack of outreach and investment in lower income communities. Oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I definitely don't see that as an either or possibility. I mean, you can absolutely have a kind of opportunity hoarding uh, phenomenon happening among richer families that are spending more and more and more on what used to be really low-cost youth sports, while at the same time, because of other uh, manifestations of opportunity hoarding, uh, you know, sort of income concentration um, and the rising privatization of a lot of previously public services, you also maybe have less investment in men in an array of 
things that are related to youth sports, like say, you know, parks and rec budgets around the country. So yeah, all these stories can be, you know, happening at the same time. And that's one of the reasons why I think that this, this story of, of declining youth sports, which initially just seems like an, oh, it's, it, it's either silly or it's just something caused by video games kind of story, turns out to be sort of a really fascinating metaphor for the unexpected ways that income inequality in the United States can manifest itself. There's an analogy to public school here, right? Um, and the notion that it's perhaps um, immoral, or if you don't want to frame it um, that harshly, that there are costs that if an individual um, you know, person, if, you know, if somebody from a wealthy family decides, oh, I'm going to put my kid in a private school, once you have like an agglomeration of all of these people making all these choices, then the knock-on effects there in terms of public schooling can be really harsh and really severe, even if in an individual level, maybe the choice that somebody is making makes sense. Um, and that it's we need to think about these things societally in a systemic way. Um, and in terms of youth sports, I think you're right, Derek, and that maybe because it doesn't seem like it's that important or it's like that big of a deal, this has sort of happened and now we're looking at this system that seems broken, we're like, well, you know, how can we fix it at this point? Well, except that we often focus on the inequality of youth sports when we talk about how good we are as a country at particular sports. You know, the running conversation in soccer for the last two decades or more has been that we don't do a good enough job of recruiting and starting leagues in inner cities. We don't reach lower income children at a very young age to give them the initial opportunity that wealthier kids have from the jump. I, I got more emails and letters to The Atlantic, to their main account on this article than just about anything I've written, I'd say in the last five years. I mean, it really, really struck a chord. I do not have children uh, and so I could only sort of report this third hand, I suppose. But the overwhelming response was, you just described what's happening in my community. Mm -hmm. And the effects are even worse when you look at this phenomenon in public schools. And I think it goes to this really, really big question of, you know, what is the cost of rich people loving their children a lot? I mean, you know, American households right now, if you sort of divide them uh, into five quintiles, the richest quintile right now spends seven times as much on um, on, e on uh, each child per household uh, than the poorest quintile. Um, that's larger uh, than uh, the child investment inequality in this country is larger than income inequality. It's even vaster for how much we spend on, on our children. And it's because, you know, rich people, you know, don't tend not to have that many children, tend to invest in them a lot, mm -hmm. and don't necessarily think about all the ways in which their investments are relatively zero sum. You know, when you pull a sort of uh, uh, a connection from your network to get your kid into an internship, well, that's probably a slot that's not going to go to somebody else. If you use, you know, if you sort of uh, uh, you know, claim legacy status at some university. Well, that's a seat that's going to your child that's not going to go to some other child. I do have a child, and sh I have been involved in our local soccer uh, rec league in D.C. for the last dozen years. And my observation sort of mirrors this. Like, what is my obligation as a wealthier parent? And I viewed it as that this league, which serves predominantly um, uh, predominantly higher income families 
in predominantly white neighborhoods of Washington hasn't done an adequate job of supporting opportunities for kids from disadvantaged families. And yes, they scholarship a ton of kids. There are teams from the other side of the park in D.C. that participate in our rec, in our rec leagues um, uh, that, that are scholarshiped in. But, you know, should there be some surtax on my admissions, on my, on my registration fee? Should we be paying another 20 or 50 bucks um, per family to start full leagues that would give kids opportunities? That's what I've lobbied for with, with, our, with our local league. Um, it hasn't happened yet, and the league does a good job of supporting um, other neighborhoods, but it's not enough because it is like the public-private school phenomenon. And, and, and in a lot of neighborhoods, the, the elite public schools sort of operate like de facto private schools. They have more sports opportunities. They have better fields. They have um, kids that have the ability to stay after school and travel and get to practice and go to games. Derek, one thing that you don't really get into in the piece that occurred to me is the difference between sports, particularly basketball is one that I was thinking about because in soccer, the way that it's developed in this country historically is that it was a sport, I think, for like white white suburban kids. Am I like botching this history, Stefan? Not like, entirely. I mean, look, it evolved as an immigrant working class factory sport. And in the last like three last decades. Four or, decades, yeah. Um, whereas basketball um, obviously has a different history again in the last three or four decades. And there is this like really robust system around AAU teams of, you know, predominantly black, poor kids who are kind of subsidized by shoe companies. I mean, I'm talking about like really elite teams here, but we're sort of talking about a similar phenomenon in soccer with travel teams and whatnot. Um, but you don't, we don't think of those like AU teams or shoe company sponsored teams as being, um, I don't know what the, what the word is. It's like uh, they're kind of exploitative, right? And in, in a lot of ways. And so just, Access isn't the total, like, end-all, be-all here. There needs to be systems here that ensure that even if there is, um, you know, increased access or ability for people of all economic backgrounds to participate in these sports, um, that these, you know, that there are systems in place that ensure that these kids are, like, not being taken advantage of. Like, that, it seems like a really difficult thing to thread here. This clicks into a lot of issues at the collegiate level, which I only skim the surface of in this piece. I mean, one big one that you didn't mention, but is, you know, I'm surely at the tip of all of our tongues is like, because a lot of these really, really talented, let's say often, you know, lower income, often black, you know, men and women are playing basketball and football at the collegiate level. And they're often just compensated with a scholarship. Um, more broadly, you know, the, the sheer amount of money that we spend on scholarships to student athletes has blown up in the last two decades. In the 1990s, I reported, Division I and Division II colleges distributed about $250 million a year in full and, par in, in full and partial scholarships to student athletes. Now it's $3 billion. Some of that money is absolutely going to children from lower income families, um, but it also sends a really, really strong signal to a lot of upper middle class, upper class families, that there's enormous money in sports 
which means that as soon as a lot of kids are entering, you know, first grade kindergarten, their parents are already thinking, how do I find the sport that's perfect for them, hyper-specialize them in that sport, and then set them up for the perfect resume builder or even scholarship? So there are so many different factors that are clicking in here, not just the sheer income inequality at the household level, but also this enormous carrot dangling for thousands and thousands of students in $3 billion worth of scholarships at D1 and D2 colleges. You're pointing out this sort of this dichotomy between what rich families are doing and how the erosion of opportunity for lower income families is manifesting. And I guess what's not clear to me is the why. Why is participation declining in baseball, basketball, football, soccer, et cetera, et cetera, at for lower income kids? What's driving a decline? It can't just be that rich kids are leaving because these leagues and these towns are frequently very bifurcated anyway. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I I think uh, several things could be going on. Um, First, there was this article in the New York Times on the decline of youth soccer participation. And Chris Moore, the executive officer of U.S. U.S. Youth Soccer Association told the Times, quote, if you can't make a travel team, some kids say, what's the point and quit playing altogether. So these kids are essentially among these peers, some of whom are rich. And they're saying, well, you know, the ones who are succeeding at this game are leaving the local level. So if I can't make that, I don't want to be left back with the chumps. That's a decision that I think some kids might be feeling. But then they also realize that they have a lot of options. Like if you don't play youth sports, you can also do a lot of stuff in the home. You can play video games. And in many ways, I had a long conversation actually with Tom Ferry from Aspen about this that didn't make the article. In many ways, video games provide a lot of kids with many of the benefits that would conceivably come from sports, but sometimes don't. Uh, Playing video games is very social. um, But if you fail, you're not failing in front of your parents. Uh, You're often just you know, failing in a virtual world where your parents can't see you. Um, you're building sort of uh, uh, an, an understanding of a, system of, of a system of rules within that video game, and you're competing to win. Well, Major League Baseball has spent some money here. The NBA has invested some money here. I mean, it really is incumbent on these larger organizations to sort of broaden their idea of what the mission is. That New York Times story that you referenced, Derek, uh, has an anecdote in it about uh, – a guy named uh, Brad Rothenberg, who's the son of Alan Rothenberg, who was the former head of the U.S. Soccer Federation. And he runs something called Alianza de Football to develop soccer among Latino kids. And his complaint is that U.S. soccer hasn't done enough to invest in in Latino and African-American communities. And the response he gets in turn is that, well, you haven't developed enough elite players. So to me, the attitudinal shift has to be that we need to be supporting things like the Mamie Johnson Little League and, and soccer leagues in Latino and African-American communities to benefit all the kids, not just to find the next national team player. And that's a mentality that is, you know, it's, it's confronted by economic realities and about the sort of goal-driven realities of some organizations. I think that kids play sports often because they want to be like their heroes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember I loved playing uh, Little League Baseball. And when I played Little League Baseball, my recreational activity was collecting baseball cards. 
and trading baseball cards. And I was obsessed with Ken Griffey Jr. and Mark McGuire. I had Nolan Ryan shirts and posters all over my room. They were my heroes. And when I pitched and when I hit, I tried to imitate the batting stances of like Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio. And I tried to imitate the pitching styles of Roger Clemens. Like they, I was acting out my sort of super, super heroic fantasies. And when I think about, you know, who are today's kids superheroes? Now, again, I don't know. I don't have kids. But I do know that kids are spending a lot of time, you know, not collecting baseball cards, but, you know, on YouTube and, and Instagram and, uh, Insta- and uh, uh, Snapchat and, you know, following their idols there. Um, and a lot of their superheroism, I think, has moved from baseball diamonds um, and maybe even soccer fields um, to digital worlds. Um, and I don't believe that, you know, the, the rise of sort of digital entertainment and video games is the overall driving factor here in the decline of youth sports. If anything, I think it's, it, it's secondary or tertiary. Um, but I don't want to ignore the fact that given that we, I, that from my experience, I know that I enjoyed playing these games because it allowed me to act like my heroes. If today's heroes aren't today's kids' heroes aren't baseball players, then they're just going to have different dreams and different um, uh, ideal recreational activities to act out those dreams. Stefan, I'm curious what you think about um, what Derek mentioned in his piece about what's going on. In uh, Norway, I'm honestly sick of just hearing that people in Norway like do everything <laughs> right and we do everything wrong. But let's uh, let's talk about it anyway. Just this idea that they they have a national lottery, they spend um, the proceeds of that lottery on youth sports, and there are all these rules about how you can't publish scores of games um, mm-hmm. for teams of of uh, kids that are under 13. Are these ideas here ones that um, we should try to emulate or that are kind of transferable given that we have all this infrastructure in place for how we do things already? Yeah, the problem is scale, right? I mean, th- like applying something like the principles that Norway or the Netherlands, the principles that they use to develop soccer players and players in other sports, a sort of club-based system as opposed to a school-based system or as opposed to a town-based system, they're going to be really hard to transfer here. Yeah, try but, it in America, Norway. Yeah. See, see how far you get. <laughs> exactly. Um, but in a lot of cases, we do that. We don't necessarily emphasize scores. Nobody's publishing scores in the rec soccer league in Washington, D.C. that I've been a part of. Um, yeah, at the travel level, they publish standings and scores, but we're not doing that. We also don't have professional coaches to help kids develop at the rec level, and which is a, a, another factor that contributes to, I think, some attrition um, of, of playing and, and desire. But the European system, you know, they don't have a college-based system. They don't give scholarships to athletes. They don't compete in the same way that American universities compete. So I'm always wary of trying to graft these systems writ large. I mean, yeah, coaching skills at the higher level, ways to encourage kids to play as opposed to keep score. I mean, we've got some fundamental blockages in the United States about just the way we think about youth sports. Um, It remains at all levels, rec or travel, elite, whatever. It remains a sort of competitive system. There is a score at the end. Um, There is sort of less emphasis on the joy of play. And there's a lot of screaming, you know, 35-year-old dads on the sidelines. I I definitely don't think that 
the United States can ever simply import some Scandinavian model and be suddenly uh, improved across the board. I, I think that a lot of these things are culturally specific. At the same time, I think that the juxtaposition with Norway here is instructive because my piece about the decline of youth sports isn't just about youth sports. It's about how America views success. Uh, that's why I, I gave the piece the um, somewhat controversial headline, American meritocracy is killing youth sports. I think in the U.S. we're very comfortable, whether it's because of the American dream or the sort of Protestant wealth gospel of the idea of compounding success, that if you're really, really good at math, then you immediately get that kid into a really good math, uh, into the accelerated math program as young as possible. And if they're really good at basketball, get them onto the accelerated program as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. Separate those who are seen as separately excellent as soon as you can to maximize success. And when I look at Norway, and it's considerably more collectivist approach to not just youth success, but youth participation in sports, what I see is that that approach hasn't obviously hurt them. And I think that if you took this youth sports story and you sort of um, expanded across the entire United States, you would see that the U.S. clearly has this attitude of accelerated success um, across the board in, 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 in many disciplines within school and in extracurricular activities. And it's just worth asking, um, is that necessarily the best way to produce, uh, to sort of maximize successful outcomes for many people as a country? Congratulations to Norway for doing well at the Winter Olympics. And thanks, uh, Derek Thompson. The story is titled American Meritocracy is Killing Youth Sports. We'll link to it on our show page. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, we were talking about whether Kevin Durant has any friends. What have you learned? Real friends. He has a real friend. Royale Ivy. Played with him at Texas. Is Royale Ivy the real MVP? He's the real MVP. He's now a coach. And this is where it gets interesting, Josh. Are you aware I was that already Royale interested. Ivy is an assistant coach with the New York Knicks? Ooh. Yes. The New York Post's Mark Berman was all over the story a couple weeks ago. When the final buzzer sounded on Friday's Warriors victory at the Garden, Knicks assistant coach Royale Ivey and Golden State forward Kevin Durant hugged and chatted for about 45 seconds on the court. That's a long time. It's done. I mean, it's done. It is done. Yeah. So when Kevin Durant showed up at UT for his one season, did he say, I'm here to make friends? He did. And he said, I'm going to pick one friend, one of you will be my friend forever, for life. And it was Royale Ivy. Stefan, what is your Royale Ivy? 
My chess immersion the past couple of weeks has included reading Bryn Jonathan Butler's new book, The Grand Master, Magnus Carlsen and the Match That Made Chess Great Again. It's ostensibly about Carlsen's last title defense in 2016, but it's more a random walk through the compelling and sometimes disturbing world of chess. Disturbing because chess genius and madness historically have never been far apart. Bobby Fischer isn't the only example. In The Grand Master, Butler explores a much lesser known one, Peter Winston, a New Yorker who was hailed as a six-year-old boy genius in 1964, tied for the U.S. Junior Championship 10 years later, and then descended into mental illness before disappearing, possibly during a blizzard in New York before his 20th birthday. Rather than just talk about Winston myself, I figured I might as well do that with Bryn Jonathan Butler. Hey, Bryn. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. You told me that Peter Winston's tragic story was the most compelling part of reporting The Grandmaster. Winston was profiled in the Saturday Evening Post in 1964 under the headline, The Remarkable Life of a Little Genius. Post-war America was fascinated with child prodigies. What was it that made Winston magazine-worthy? Well, that he, he was at one of the most prestigious schools for gifted kids, and he was the one who glaringly stood out. Math was his great talent, was his extraordinary talent. He just immediately impressed upon everybody who met him that he was a standout, a global standout intellect. And he was also just a, a fascinatingly compelling character. He, he struck me, it was like meeting Seymour Glass as I was reading more about him. Uh, on last week's show, I talked about next Bobby Fisher's. I found a chess column from December 1972, three months after Fisher beat Spassky, that asked of Winston another Bobby Fisher. He was 14. The column mentions that he had just beaten six-time U.S. champ Walter Brown in a tournament, crushed him so badly, in fact, that it came to be known as The Game, and Winston analyzed it in Chess Life magazine. He was really good. He was extraordinarily good, and it seemed to me that he was the first one that arrived of that next Bobby Fischer brigade that continues to this day with Fabiano Caruana. Uh, but in high school, Winston was diagnosed as schizophrenic. He was hospitalized, treated with lithium. His chest went south along with his life, or maybe it was vice versa. Describe what happened and the circumstances of his disappearance. He was, he was growing up in the 60s and, and early 70s and began to dabble with drugs is what I heard. And it, it really did a number on him psychologically. And perhaps some of this owes to chess. As you say, there is a long history of some of the greatest players descending into scary places mentally with illness. So with Peter Winston, uh, he was institutionalized over the course of uh, the last couple of years of, of his life, what we believe to be the end of his life. And in February, the largest blizzard ever to hit New York. This is what, 1978? This is 1978, just before his 20th birthday. And he had a conversation with his sister and left behind his jacket, his wallet, his keys, and was never seen again. His body was never found. And it's 40 years now, and the case is still open. The New Yorker profiled Magnus Carlsen in 2011, and after that, uh, staff writer Richard Brody wrote a short post saying how it reminded him of Winston, who was a childhood school and chess friend of his. Brody briefly tells Winston's story there, and he concludes that chess can be dangerous what, for what he calls adolescent intellectuals. He says that uh, chess narrows great minds, shuts them off from the world, prevents them from adapting to life off the board. You spend some time in your book wondering whether players like Carlson and Caruana run a risk like some of these grandmasters before them. Do you think that they do? 
Oh, I think they do, and I think they've readily admitted it. Um, I, I, I'm, don't, I didn't find myself fishing for that. Carlson himself, when he was profiled by 60 Minutes, was asked that very question. When you look at Fisher, do you see some of the signs, the threats that he was under in your own situation? And he said two things that really caught my eye. One is that there are demons that I have that I never speak to anybody about. And I did ask myself when I saw Fisher, could this happen to me? So it's something I need to be prepared for. So I think there is a kind of dark undertow about chess at the highest levels, as there is with any form of, of obsession that leads somebody to genius. Um, we like to think that virtue leads them there. Very often it's demons. And so I, I did see uh, a kind of nexus there with Carlson that was present. I'm not saying that he's about to descend into anything like what happened to Bobby Fischer or Peter Winston, but um, it was a thread that was through a lot of the elite chess people that I, I was exploring. It might help Carlson that he's got like, you know, multi-million dollar sponsorships and he's sort of a global celebrity. Absolutely. And and another thing is that chess players are not terribly well compensated, despite so many people playing. So maybe it speaks more to the effects of poverty that they're enduring than just something intrinsic to chess that, that drags them under. Bryn Jonathan Butler's new book is The Grandmaster, Magnus Carlson, and the Match That Made Chess Great Again. Please go buy it. Bryn, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Josh, what's your Royale Ivy? There is no great reason to watch college basketball in November unless uh, Zion Williamson is involved. And so given that, you might have missed that the Furman Paladins of Greenville, South Carolina, have somehow already beaten two of the teams from last year's Final Four. On November 9th, Mighty Furman took down Loyola Chicago. Remember them? Oh, yeah. They were in the Final Four, right? Yeah. Uh, Furman beat them 60-58. to 58. And this past weekend— A lot Mighty... of people are going to beat them. Let's just stipulate. No. I don't think so. Still got a, still got a solid squad. Only Furman. Uh, this past weekend, Mighty Furman beat defending national champion Villanova. 76 to 68. You think people, a lot of people are going to be at Villanova too? Michigan did already. You're not going to uh, going to stop disrespecting Furman on this podcast. Uh, Furman isn't bad. They won 23 games last year, but they still have not made the NCAA tournament since 1980. Maybe they'll do it this year. Go Paladins. Now, as we mentioned, no disrespect to Furman on this podcast, but maybe a little bit of disrespect to Furman on this podcast. When you lose to a team like Furman, you're probably not going to win the national title. So sorry, Villanova, and sorry, Loyola Chicago. But there is one exception that the sad Villanova and Loyola Chicago players can look to. It involved a team that was way, way worse than Furman, like legit bad. Back in 1999, Michigan State was coming off a Final Four appearance they had a bunch of extremely good players, including uh, longtime NBA players, Jason Richardson, Morris Peterson. They also had Charlie Bell, who was a really good college player. They also had Mateen Cleaves, who was a very good college player. Early in the season, this Michigan State team, they beat number two North Carolina, number five Kansas. They then went on the road to play Wright State. Uh, they were playing the game in Dayton because one of the Michigan State players, Andre Hudson, was from Dayton. And it seemed like a nice thing to do. We'll give you a game in, in Dayton so your friends and family can come see you. Uh, Andre Hudson probably had friends, maybe just one. Who's to say? Uh, going into the game, Wright State was 3-8, and eight, having lost to the likes of Miami, Ohio, Northern Illinois, and Central Michigan. They lost to Central Michigan by 28 points. 
no disrespect to Central Michigan, but actually massive disrespect to Central Michigan because Central Mich- Michigan, who beat Wright State by 28 points, finished the year 6-23. and 23. Uh, But back to Wright State. Their best players were uh, Kevin Melson, who would go on to lead all of Belgium in scoring during one uh, season of his 10-year professional career. Not the smallest country. They're, they're smaller. No disrespect to Belgium. Also, Israel Scheinfeld, who in an extremely on-brand move was from Israel, uh, he averaged three points per game for the Greek team Egalio BC. Egalio. BC. BC. Basketball <laughs> in, club. There we go. In 2006-2007. So Basket this, club. This guy, was a, this guy was a baller. Three points for, per game in the Greek league. Uh, in 1999, before they, these guys had gone pro, the Wright State players, according to a piece on the Wright State website, came in with a surprising level of op- optimism for some unknown reason. Uh, they raced out to a 10-2 to lead on Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State was playing without Mateen Cleaves, their point guard. But Michigan State took the lead back. They went up by as much as eight in the second half. But Wright State would retake the lead at the free, free throw line. Uh, reading the recap of the game. I just remembered that this thing had happened and it was weird and I wanted to go back. It seemed like actually a pretty terrible game to watch and there aren't really that many highlights I can point to because neither team made a field goal in the last 442 of the game, which sounds fairly dreadful to watch, uh, as does Michigan State's 33% shooting from the floor. But Wright State retook the lead uh, with making like nine of their last 10 at the free throw line. They won by 53 to 49. Michigan State, uh, totally decimated and depressed by this victory, would go on to win 23 of its next 26 games. In the NCAA tournament, they would win all of their games by double digits, including the national title game against Florida, all of which would have been extremely confusing if you had uh, been at that game against Wright State. Wright State would go on to end the year 11-17. and 17. They would finish sixth place in the Midwestern Collegiate Conference. The team that finished in last place in the MCC that year, Stefan? No. Who? Loyola Chicago. What goes around comes around. 18 years later, they would make the Final Four. And 19 years later, they would lose to Furman. Go Paladins. That is the message of this afterball. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> <laughs>